Hello and welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to your tech questions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined by my co-host, Micah Sargent. Micah, how are you? I am doing well, Stephen. It is uh, well within the 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 December month. Well, not I guess the December month has just begun, but I'm excited because it's well within the chilly times, and I love it when it's cold outside. It is cold. Uh, I think listeners will know that I record in a studio, and I have to turn the heat off when I'm recording because it's loud. And so, like the longer the show goes, the colder <laughs> my hands get. The more you become a snowman. <laughs> yeah, as like, slowly, if you hear teeth chattering later in the show, that's uh, that's what's going on. We have a bunch of stuff to talk about today, but I wanted to make uh, a brief announcement, just a quick note before we get started this week. I want to let everyone know that the next episode of Query will be our last episode. Serenity, Mike, and I have really enjoyed making the show. Uh, Serenity came to me with this idea a long time ago, and we worked on it for a while and got it going, and then she changed jobs. And Micah, you were very gracious to come in, and I've I've enjoyed working with both of you so much. But it's kind of one of those things where it's time to move on to other projects. And uh, and so that's what we're doing. So this is the penultimate episode of Query. And uh, yeah, it's 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 bittersweet, man. It's bittersweet. Yeah, I love that there's a term for that, penultimate. That's such a good word. Um, it is I, a good word. <laughs> I, have, I was, of course, honored when uh, you and Serenity reached out to me and asked if I could uh, replace or, or, you know, fill the spot for Serenity whenever she mm-hmm. left. And uh, that meant a lot to me. And working with you has been quite a bit of fun. And I've enjoyed uh, I've enjoyed that as well. The show, I love the idea of, you know, helping people and a lot of my writing in the past has been uh, helping people with yeah. the questions that they have. And so this, you know, is is right up that alley. And it's been great being able to answer those questions and get feedback for it. And so I just want to send my thanks out to all of you who have sent in questions in the past and have then followed up to say, you know, hey, this worked, this, this is what didn't this is, and even folks who, you know, sent in support to say, hey, here's how I got the problem solved. Um, so thanks to all of you who actively participated there. Uh, thank you to you, Stephen, for asking me to join and a big shout out to Serenity for uh, dreaming up the idea in her noggin and then asking me to fill in for her when she left. Yeah. So it's uh, it's sad, but sometimes, you know, when when it's the right answer. Um, but that's enough. That's enough feelings talk. We have <laughs> we have things to talk about. We have iMessage syncing and shortcuts, <laughs> oh, <Lordy. laughs> uh, but we're going to start again in HomeKit land. And yes. so uh, what is going on with Hugh Bridges? Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to talk, talk about smart home stuff. A lot of people seem to have questions, especially around the holidays, because they get these, you know, smart home setups and maybe are running into issues with them, or they're trying to help a family member who's getting into it or what have you. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of questions uh, in the past, and I believe even answered a question before about the difference between uh, Wi-Fi versus having a bridge in in the smart home. But I want to talk uh, specifically about one of the most popular smart bulb systems out there, which is, and, and longest running too, it's the Philips Hue lighting system. Um, so a question that I get a lot is, do I need to buy that square thing in order to use my Philips Hue lights? That square thing is the Philips Hue bridge. Uh, so for folks who don't know, the Philips Hue lights are a little bit different from something like the LifeX bulbs or, uh, oh goodness, TP-Link has a set of Casa bulbs. These bulbs have built into each of the lights a Wi-Fi chip that allows you to connect that bulb directly to your wireless network and then communicate with the bulb directly. A Philips Hue light does not have that Wi-Fi chip inside of it. Instead, it has a chip that communicates with the Philips Hue bridge. So you have to plug the bridge into the router and it's essentially like the bulb speaks a different language from your router and the bridge serves as the translation device. It is Google Translate, except it's better than Google Translate because it doesn't get it wrong. So the router speaks its language to the, 
to the bridge. The bridge then says, okay, I know that the bulb is speaking this language and it sends that command, makes the bulb do what you want it to do. Now, the reason that you would want to have a Philips Hue bridge is because it's going to get you the best possible experience for your lights. These bulbs have, depending on which ones you get, there are the Philips Hue light and color ambience. There are the Philips Hue light or white, I believe it's called. And then the Philips Hue white ambience. Uh, there, there, there are three different kinds. One that just does a plain white light and dims from, from completely off to bright. There is the Philips Hue color. And that one can show up in millions of colors. And then there's one in the middle that lets you go between different white color temperatures. So a nice uh, energetic blue to a very soft, soft orange warm light. Uh, and in order to be able to change the colors, you definitely need a bridge device to do that. Because that's the way that it can communicate more than just like on, off, or dimming. However... If you want to not pay the money for the Philips Hue bridge, uh, and you still want to, you know, gift somebody some Philips Hue lights, especially if they're just the white bulbs, then the good news is you can get the Philips Hue dimmer switch and use that with up to 10 Philips Hue bulbs. So the way that it works is the, the Philips Hue dimmer switch is I feel an incredible little device. It it runs on a button battery and it has it's a rectangle and it's got an on button, an off button, a dim and a bright button so you can, you know, bring it up or bring it down in in brightness. This little dude will connect with up to 10 bulbs and allow you to turn them on, turn them off or dim or brighten the bulb. Now, Again, that's only going to allow you to do those four things. You're not going to be able to do more with them. Right. It's pretty simple in its control, basically. Yes, exactly. And for that reason, I feel that it's just a good idea to go ahead and, you know, spend the money uh, to get the Philips Hue bridge. I think you can find it, you know, sometimes on sale, but at most it's about 60 bucks, I believe, uh, which is not bad. And here's the deal. Here's the good thing is once you get the hub and you add that to your home, then suddenly all you have to get are the bulbs and you can control those uh, quite easily. Whereas if you buy Wi-Fi enabled lights, they're typically more expensive uh, per item. And that's because each one has a Wi-Fi chip inside of it. And so you're paying for that Wi-Fi chip as well. You're paying for the extra money that goes into uh, heat dispersion and you know all of that kind of stuff. And not only that, you're also adding to your network congestion when you get a bunch of different Wi-Fi bulbs connected to your router. So kind of a good idea and, and something that I do is try to look at my, my smart home setup and see, okay, how much of this stuff is running on my network as individual devices. So I've got, you know, my computer, my phone, my tablet. And then do I want to also have 10 bulbs all around my house that are individual Wi-Fi devices, devices? Yes. Uh, sort of vying for my connection. Not necessarily. And that's why I feel that the, you know, using a Philips Hue bridge is a better option because it is connected directly to your router, not even via wireless. So that's fantastic. And then the it handles all of the communication. It doesn't congest your network in the same way. And therefore, I think it also provides some good reliability and good responsiveness. My Philips mm -hmm. Hue bulbs are some of the most responsive devices that I have in in the setup. And uh, they, they work quite well. And the last thing I'll say about this, because I know I'm, I'm bloviating at this point, uh, is that the, by, by getting the bridge, you are also inviting home kit connectivity that you would not otherwise have with your Philips Hue setup. And one of my favorite products within home kit compatibility is that dimmer switch that I talked about earlier, because you can program it to be a, a home kit switch. 
So I have a Philips Hue dimmer switch that I have in my living room. And when I hit the on button, it turns on all of the lights in my living room, dining room, and kitchen area because it's all essentially one big room. And when I hit off, it turns all of those off and just turns on a nightlight in that space. And then the middle two buttons are for controlling just the lights in my living room area. Mm. So the top one makes it bright. So if I'm just like sitting and reading a book or something like that, and the bottom one dims it down. So if I'm watching television, it'll turn off all the lights in the kitchen and in the dining room and just have the lights on in the living room. So all of that happens with just the push of a button. And the only other way to do that would be to set up a a scene for each of those and then try to remember that scene and communicate it via voice to Siri. Uh, and and this, it's just so much easier to have this little remote that I can immediately do that. And it also makes it easy for guests who come in. I can say, here's how you do this. And they don't have to worry about getting invited to my home kit home and all that stuff or talking to my home pod, what have you. So I, in the end, I think a bridge is a very good idea, particularly if you see yourself diving deeper into the smart home, which folks, once you get a taste for it, you kind of keep going. So <laughs> it's just a good idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, my setup in my studio is all Hue lights and I have the, the bridge is just plugged into my router out here. It's real small, silent, you know, doesn't generate any heat. And I just like that it's, it makes the system really flexible. I can just add stuff really easily and not have to worry about the complexity of if I want to add a lamp with three light bulbs, having to add three new things to my network, right? I just open mm-hmm. the Hue app and I add them and the bridge sort of negotiates all of that. And I, I get the idea of maybe you don't want another box hanging out, but it's super small and it it really makes changing or adding things, to your point, much simpler. So, you know, I've got no problems with the way Hue does it. And I've got you know, a couple different brands like you do. And I agree with you, the Hue stuff, I mean, it's expensive for what it what it is, but it does respond not only the fastest, but I think the most consistent. I have some yes. stuff that like drops off the network for some reason. <laughs> I can't ascertain you have to like plug it, unplug it, unplug it back in. I never, that this Hue bridge has been running out here for two years. I've never had to touch it, right? Amen. Like it just sits there and does its thing. And that's, that's how you want smart home stuff to be. You don't want this stuff to be fiddly or broken half the time. And the the bridge, I think, is a, is a real win from that angle. Absolutely. And, and in fact, if I can, I was just talking about this uh, on iOS today, but one of my favorite smart home things that I have in my home is something simple that you might not think. It is the Hue motion sensor. That device is the most responsive smart home gadget I have ever added to my home, the most reliable smart home gadget I've ever added to my home. And it is currently set up in my hallway. And it is they're tended to use for transitional spaces. And so when I walk into my hallway, it will turn on the light in the hallway. And then after like, I think five seconds of, of, or maybe it's 10 seconds or something like that of no movement, then it dims the light and then it shuts it off. And when it's later in the day, well, at night rather, then it will only come on at a, what's, what's called night light within the hue system. And it's just a very dark and warm light so that it doesn't, you know, send those light waves all the way across the room. And it also has a uh, light sensor inside of it so that if the sunlight is bright enough, it won't trigger the bulb to turn it on. Mm, And if it was any other, if it was a Bluetooth LE motion sensor, if it was any other company that makes a motion sensor, I would, because I have some of those, they're not as responsive as this. This is responsive enough that when someone who doesn't know anything other than the fact that, you know, oh, Mike is a techie and probably has smart stuff in his house, their brain doesn't get a chance to say, oh, I need to flip that switch in the hallway to turn on the light because the light's already on because it's since their movement. I've never had someone accidentally turn off that light in the hallway which is connected to a Wi-Fi bulb, which is annoying. But that's what you want, especially if you're trying to convince people that the <laughs> that smart home is the way of the future rather than just being able to reliably turn on and off a switch. It needs to work. It needs to work every time. And it needs to work quickly. And uh, Hugh has done that. And yeah, I'm, I know it's because of the, the bridge and not having to negotiate a bunch of other connections. 
Simple is always best with this stuff. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I firmly believe that. All right, this episode of Query is brought to you by Pingdom, the company that makes website performance monitoring really easy. And everyone loves a fast website. And Pingdom is helping keep your favorite sites online. Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack, RelayFM. All, all these companies are trusting Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Websites can be pretty complicated, and you can monitor any individual site transaction with Pingdom, stuff like user registrations, logins, checkouts, and much more. Pingdom cares about your users and them having the smoothest site experience possible. And if disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know with their really great notification system. It's super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is your URL, and they take care of the rest. So go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required to check it out. And when you sign up, use the code QUERY at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. My thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and RelayFM. So since we only have two episodes left, I wanted to devote a little time in each one talking about our setup. So we've spent a lot of time answering questions and talking about this stuff, but I kind of just want to share a little bit about how we get our work done. And I think it's always interesting to talk about how people, you know, have their setups and, and what things they've run into working and not working for them. Uh, and so you, you're up first. Now I've seen, I've seen a photo of your desk. So I kind of have in my mind's eye, what you have, mm-hmm. uh, but will you, uh, uh, share a little bit with the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm really, I'm happy with my, my desk setup. It took some, some time to, you know, get it all figured out and get exactly what I wanted. Um, but it started with the Jarvis Bamboo Standing Desk. So this company used to have a different name, um, but it is now called Fully. That's F-U-L-L-Y. And they make a sit-stand desk. So it's motorized that allows you to, you know, use it as a standing desk or as a sitting desk. Uh, and it's a big bamboo top. And I go between those two settings, uh, day in and, and day out, depending on, on how I'm feeling. Uh, so that's, that's my desk. I love it. It was like one of the first purchases I made, um, when I, you know, wanted to upgrade my home office. And on top of that desk is kind of quite a bit, but I'll start with the, uh, monitors. They are actually, uh, connected to a fully, monitor arm it is a a two arm system made by fully and they are two dell oh golly dell i think (laughs) their usernames are awful (laughs) yeah they're horrible dell u2415 monitors they're each 24 inches and they are smaller than than you know uh, bigger displays but they have that same resolution so uh my thought was that hey it should be you know a little bit clearer (laughs) on these displays because i'm giving up the retina display of uh of my computer in order to have those so i've got those on the left and the right you know they're side by side and i love having that exact same um bezel and the the the, you know they're the same same size shape and everything like that i'm not a big fan of mixed displays uh if i can help it same oh Oh my gosh it it would it it, i used to have a setup like that where i used a macbook air up to one side and a 24 inch display and i i found it really frustrating as you're trying to like manage windows and mac os and it not being happy about things being different sizes. Yeah, especially with Adobe applications, it gets so picky about uh, the way, you know, and then they, then they end up being outside of the frame. You can't, re- it's it's a nightmare. So I love, yeah, having two monitors that are the same size. Uh, this is all connected uh, to a mid-2015 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro. I'm still running that old school cat. Uh, it's the one with discrete graphics. Um, it, is uh what 16 gigs of of memory and i think it's just a oh goodness 500 gigabytes of yeah 500 gigabytes of storage um but that's that's my my main computer and i mostly run it in clamshell mode um which is one of the reasons that i've been kind of pumped about the mac mini because i've been eyeballing that as a more permanent um 
you know, more permanent and stationary solution. Uh, but those all connect to an Elgato dock. Uh, it's a Thunderbolt 2 dock and everything is kind of connected via that so that it's easy for me. If I do end up taking my computer somewhere, I can run away, uh, quite easily and disconnect everything. Um, and then I've got some network attached storage for taking care of storing most of my stuff, but I use most of my file sharing, uh, happens with Dropbox. Um, I use both a magic mouse and magic keyboard and, or rather a magic mouse and a magic trackpad. And then I have the magic keyboard as well. I just recently had to replace that because the G key stopped or maybe it was the D key. One of the keys just stopped working completely and I couldn't fix it. And that was a nightmare. Um, but yeah, I have, I use both. The mouse is used for, um, quite a bit. I mostly use the mouse, but when I'm editing audio or video, I tend to use the trackpad for doing uh, cuts and, and zooming in and out of the, the timeline there. Um, I, which may come as a surprise to many of you who listen to podcasts in our little, you know, corner of the interweb. I do not use logic to edit podcasts. I, in fact, use Adobe Audition. Um, when I was in high school, I did a web show with some friends for a couple years. And way back then, I learned how to use Adobe's suite of applications, including Premiere, including Audition, including Photoshop, and several others. And so I've been a longtime fan of and, and user of Adobe Audition. And uh, because I already do the sort of basic audio cleanup in there, which includes noise remove background noise removal and um boosting the audio for our beautiful modern <laughs> uh listening devices and things like that. Uh it's easy for me to just stay right within o Adobe Audition. So that's the application that I use to to edit. Um, but I do use Final Cut Pro when it comes to editing videos. As for writing uh, I kind of, I kind of, uh, vacillate depending. I will use, uh, IA writer if I'm really trying to sort of lock into something and not, um, you know, not focus on anything else. But day to day, I just really love text edit. Text edit is one of my favorite applications. I almost always have like three different text edit documents open, uh, in the background. I'm constantly saving text edit documents. It it is I don't know, I just I love text edit. I think it's just the simplicity of it. It's mm. you know, a lot like IA Writer, Ulysses, uh some of the other ones, they they're even those still have so much more connected to them. And even the notes app, there's just still so so much frill. Whereas text edit just leaves your text alone and lets you do what you want. And I'm a huge fan of it in iOS, or iOS, Mac OS Mojave, uh, in dark mode. It's really nice with a dark gray background and white text. It stands out quite clearly. Um, so <laughs> if you looked into my text edit iCloud, uh, folder, you would see so many documents, uh, stored there. <laughs> um, I will say I just recently updated my, uh, well, not recently, but it, it's been within this past year, my mic setup. Um, so I've got the Tascam US, uh, two by two. I don't know how else to call it, anything else, but it's, um, one that I see recommended quite a bit. Yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, it's, it's been fantastic for me. Once I got everything set up, I've got the rolls mic switch, uh, the, it's a, what is it? A Rode micro microphone boom arm. And then the sure beta 87 a, which is, I know a popular podcast among it's what I'm, what I'm talking into right now. Aha. Yes. A popular mic among podcasters. Uh, other than that, I've got, let's see, uh, an, external Samsung uh, solid state drive. It's uh, also 500 gigabytes. And I have been using that as my time machine um, mm -hmm. drive. So that's been great because it, you know, quickly backs up to that no issue. And then I just use some M audio uh, bookshelf speakers that were recommended by the wire cutter uh, that 
their choices since switched, but at the time, um, it was their choice for the best, uh, computer speakers that you could, you know, use. So those sit on the left and right side. Um, and then other than that, I've got some huge LED light panels that I turn on whenever I'm doing video podcasting, uh, for Twit or for the iMore show or mostly the two places where that happens. Um, and some nice acoustic, uh, foam that I've positioned on. I, I put it on, I actually glued it to a huge panel of cardboard and then mounted that cardboard with screws onto the wall so that I would not have to worry about trying to remove them from the wall yeah. having glued them there. I, I nailed mine directly to the wall. Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's Yes, that's another option. It's uh, not coming down. <laughs> it's, it's there and it's uh, going to be there. And then other than that, I have just the... It's kind of, it's a really popular, the Logitech 1080p uh, webcam that I know a lot of people use and I think is also a recommendation on the wire cutter. Uh, oh, and my chair, my chair. It's made by a company called Autonomous AI. Uh, why they have AI of their name, I have no idea because there's nothing that's <laughs> artificially intelligent about it. Uh, but it is called the Ergo Chair 2. It is, it was only $300. Um, and you know, for some people saying only $300 is ridiculous. Uh, but when you look at some of the other chairs that are out there, $300 is a really good price for what this chair offers. Um, it's got all the fun ergonomic adjustments and, and setups mm-hmm. and, you know, bendings and all that kind of stuff, but it didn't cost me a thousand dollars or some ridiculous price right. like that. So I quite enjoy the, Ergo Chair 2 from Autonomous. Um, yeah. Any questions? Anything I missed? Anything you want to know about? Yeah. How, so like in a regular week, how much time do you think you spend standing versus sitting? Because I've debated, so spoilers for next week, my desk is a door on some cheap Ikea legs. Nice. But I've thought about replacing the legs with sit-stand ones, but I just don't know how much I'd actually use it. So I'm curious how how often do you think you stand? Uh, so I typically like to stay... I. The way that I kind of force my, not force myself, but encourage myself into using it as a standing desk is by picking tasks, uh, to stand mm, to do. Okay. Uh, when I podcast, I like to sit because I don't ever want to have a situation where I'm like, you know, the podcast is running long or something and then I'm tired and I'm like, hold on, let me make this thing make this loud noise while I sit down. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, when I edit podcasts, I will stand. Um, and if I'm working on sort of a long form article or piece or something like that, then I'll stand. And anytime I open, uh, like a photo editing or video editing app as well, then I'll stand. Uh, but when I'm just sort of browsing the internet for something quick, then the chair is typically already in sitting mode. And so I'll have it there because the, the problem with just sort of, quickly and easily going between the two uh, areas. It's not, I, I've got a, um, what is that called? A, it, it makes it so that, oh yeah, anti-fatigue mat is the term that I'm looking oh, for. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so the way that I have it set up is with my chair here and, and in sitting mode, the anti-fatigue mat is pushed underneath the desk. And so when I stand, I essentially like you as I'm standing, I use the motion of my my knees to sort of push the chair back. And then I bend down and pull out the the anti fatigue mat and then hit the button to raise the standing desk. And then you know, to go back into sitting mode, just push the the anti fatigue mat underneath with my feet, and then pull my chair up again, and then I can sit down. So it's not the most simple process, but it means that I can stand for a lot longer because I've tried without the anti fatigue mat, and it, it genuinely does make a difference. So for me, the way that I was able to do it was by picking tasks with which to stand. And, um, that way, you know, I did get in a good, a good bit of standing each day, uh, versus what some people do, which is sort of like plan out if they're, they know they're going to be at their desk for eight hours, then they'll set a reminder or something to, Mm -hmm. uh, stand for two hours, sit for an hour and go back and forth. So uh, for me, that was not something I knew I wasn't going to do that. And, uh, so it's easier for my brain, uh, to pick, yeah, tasks. It's like, okay, now I'm at a standing task. And there's something about standing while editing a podcast that 
I don't know. It just feels feels right. <laughs> hmm. I may I may jump into that world next year. I would need to redo some of my cable stuff so mm-hmm. the desk can move a little more easily. But I keep I keep thinking about it. Um, I guess my only other other question is how often does that MacBook Pro actually get used as a notebook? Is, I mean, it's, it's, it's hooked up to all this crazy stuff. Is mm-hmm. it, is it effectively a desktop all the time? I would say 90% of the time. Um, well, maybe even more 95% of the time I've got my iPad pro with, uh, with the keyboard case. I forget what it's called. The one that Apple makes. Um, and because of that, if I'm in my house, that's what I use as my sort of laptop device. Uh, the only time that my laptop really goes with me, uh, you know, gets used as an actual notebook is if I am, you know, going somewhere else. If I am, so for example, during the holidays, if I needed to podcast while I was, uh, out of town, then I would take my MacBook Pro with me by itself. And if I go, you know, out of town for, more than a couple days, then I'll take it with me. But yeah, when I'm doing my day to day stuff, it's in clamshell mode, it is um, running as a desktop device. And so in that sense, like a Mac mini wouldn't even necessarily be something that I needed because I it's not as if I'm, you know, begging to be able to use my MacBook Pro mobily, because most mm. of the time I don't use it that way. So it would almost like make the MacBook Pro just sort of sit there unused, kind of sad, unless I was on the way. But I don't know. It might be that if I knew that it was available, I would use my iPad less and just use my MacBook Pro because it would be handily available. I mean, right now, uh, there are one, two, three, four cords that are plugged into it. There is um, a USB plug that is connected to an Anchor USB hub. There is a Thunderbolt 2 plug that is connected to the Elgato. The dock. Thank you. Elgato dock. Thank you. And then there is a DisplayPort uh, plug that is connected to the other Thunderbolt 2 port. And that is connected to one of the displays. And then there is the charger. Now, folks might wonder why the heck I have a DisplayPort from the monitor plugged in instead of just directly into the Elgato dock. And that's because of a pesky thing with macOS, where daisy chaining uh, between different DisplayPort monitors is uh, less than less than what ideal. you want. Yeah, less than <laughs> ideal. Thank you. Um, so I have to have one running over HDMI, which is plugged mm. into the Elgato dock, and then one running over DisplayPort, which is plugged directly into the Mac in order to have them as two separate displays, as opposed to just mirror displays. It's annoying. I don't like it, but it is what it is. And essentially, um, I use a little app called Undock, and it allows me to quickly eject any of the external stuff that's plugged in. And that way, it is, it's not a horrible process to unplug the MacBook Pro, but it's enough friction that I just, you know, grab the iPad instead. So I do wonder if I would use the MacBook Pro more mobily if I didn't have the have it plugged in in the way that i do now well thanks for sharing sounds like you've got a real just like command center over there. <laughs> screens yes. everywhere you're Mission standing control. you're sitting i used to have a third monitor set up that uh was connected to a it, it, it is above everything else um on an amazon basic swivel arm and it was connected to a uh chromecast and occasionally during the day, I would just play because The Office is a show that I've seen so much that it can actually be background noise for me. And so mm-hmm. I used to just sort of let The Office play in the background on it. Um, <laughs> but then I realized that that was ridiculous and excessive. And uh, a friend really needed a monitor. So I, I gave it was like an ultra wide monitor and I had no other use for it. Um, so I gave it to to the friend. All right. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about yours next week. Oh boy, I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) This episode of Query is also brought to you by Simple Contacts. We're all busy. We all have a bunch of things that demand our time. You've got work to do, side projects to complete, and maybe a video game or two to play. But luckily, you don't have to worry about ordering your contact lenses junking up that list. 
Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your contacts online, so you can do it from anywhere in just minutes. They have a self-guided vision test that just takes five minutes, way faster than taking that time off to go to the doctor's office. A licensed doctor reviews every test, so you can skip the office visit, but not the care, because we need to let you know this is not a replacement for your periodic full-eye health exam. Simple Contacts is just checking that your current prescription still helps you see 2020 and will renew your lenses based on that previous prescription. They're not writing a new one or examining your eye health. I've been using Simple Contacts. I have a prescription that's a little unusual, and they have the brand that I like, so I was able to put them in, do the vision test, and within a couple of days, I had contacts on my doorstep, didn't have to go anywhere. Simple Contacts has all the brands and lens types you're already familiar with. Their vision tests just cost 20 bucks, and the prices of the contact lenses are just unbeatable. The best part is standard shipping is free, and we have a special offer for you, dear listener. You can join the other 5,000 people who have rated Simple Contacts five stars in the App Store, and to get $20 off your contacts, go to simplecontacts.com slash query20 and use the code query20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash query20 and use the code query20 for $20 off your order. Our thanks to Simple Contacts for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, time for the speed run. We are going to start with a question from Lizzie who writes, I noticed that certain iMessage threads are not synchronized between my iPad and iPhone while others are. I'm running 12.1, iOS 12.1 on both of my devices and I've attempted various troubleshooting steps found by searching online without success. Any ideas to help me solve this? (sighs) <sighs> Lizzie, Lizzie, I have to say I've had this issue myself uh, in the past, and it seems like every time I make the mistake of <laughs> you know using an iOS beta, uh, I run into the issue again. But I recently had a friend who you know doesn't run beta and was probably on iOS twelve point one have a similar issue. They opened up their iMessage or they opened up their Messages app. And there were no messages there. Uh, and uh. yeah, of course, they were freaking out with good reason. It is frightening. Uh, the good news and something that I want you to sort of, you know, we can all uh, breathe in and breathe out about is that when you turn on uh, iMessage in the cloud, or rather messages in, in what is it? Messages and iCloud. They, they changed the name, I swear, but it's like messages in iCloud. Sometimes it's called iMessages in the cloud, etc. But uh, when you turn on messages in iCloud on your devices, then those messages are, in fact, stored in iCloud. So if they're not showing up on one device, chances are high. I will not say they are perfect, but chances are high that they are somewhere up in that that cloud that's just for some reason not reaching your device. And the other good news is that if you turn off messages in the cloud on one of your devices, they are still stored in the cloud. Now, if you delete a message then it is going to be deleted across your entire set of devices. So that is, you know, trou- troubleshooting wise, it is not a good idea to delete a conversation, hoping that maybe that will like spring the the server and make it, you know, figure things out. Um, I know that you've tried some troubleshooting steps that you searched uh, online. My biggest troubleshooting tip that I can give with this particular issue is genuinely and unfortunately, patience. Um, the friend of mine, I went through a bunch of different stuff and it was not working. And then I got a message the next day and their messages had showed up again. Um, for whatever reason, there could be an issue somewhere on the server where something isn't syncing and something is messed up. And then it ends up writing itself whenever, you know, the, the, your, phone next connects to uh, the cloud and starts to pull things down. Um, you can try toggling, and I'm sure that you've, you've tried this before, uh, but if you haven't, you can try toggling on and off <laughs> uh, messages in iCloud. 
Um, and genuinely, I, I know sometimes folks are like, oh, you are not telling me to turn it off and on again. But so many times <laughs> that is the thing that ends up uh, helping with it. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't understand why, but my Mac seems to be better at syncing messages than my phone does at times. And I think that that might be because of the way that uh, iOS very, very heavily tries to save you storage space, uh, whereas the Mac is not necessarily trying as hard. It's not as much of a try hard uh, about saving your storage. And so messages on the Mac might be showing the... Um, might be showing more of your messages. So a pro tip there is if you do have a Mac and you do have it logged in to iMessage, go ahead and on your Mac, open up messages, then up in the menu bar, choose preferences. And then there are just two options at the top. There's general and there's iMessage. Click on iMessage. Make sure that enable messages in iCloud is checked. And then the important thing and the thing that should help sort of get everything where it needs to be is to click sync now to the right of enable messages in iCloud. Now, since at least for me, my Mac seems to show more of my messages, even whenever my phone or my iPad is being a little weird, uh, clicking that sync now button seems to sort of, you know, push things along and make them available then in iCloud. Um, now, <laughs> if, if you're still running into issues, then do go ahead and try to uh, fully restart your device. Not reset, but restart your device. Uh, so depending on which uh, iPhone you have, that might be as simple as pressing the sleep-wake button and the home button until the phone resets. That is the old way of doing things, right, Stephen? It's been so long mm -hmm. since I've had a home button. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those. Yeah, back in those days. Uh, or with the new iPhone 10 and 10s devices where it's a whole juggle of up, up, down, up, down, left, right, start, or, or however that goes. Um, <laughs> then you could use that to, to restart your device. Um, but yeah, so again, your base uh, troubleshoot is to go ahead and try toggling. Uh, if you have a Mac... Again, use that sync now feature um, that can help. But at the end of the day, know that if you've had messages in iCloud turned on, then you can count on the fact that they are up there in the server somewhere and that they should be synchronizing a little bit better. Uh, and do make sure, of course, that in um, settings and then tapping your Apple ID badge at the top, tapping iCloud, Scroll down and make sure that on both your iPad and your iPhone, you do have messages turned on uh, under the section labeled apps using iCloud. <sighs> iMessage. <laughs> <laughs> trouble, 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 trouble. Uh, go ahead and uh, do you have any last thoughts on that or are you ready for the next one? Uh, I know. I think the, the deal, like sometimes it just takes some time. Uh, I know one thing when I turned on messages in the cloud or whatever it was slow and so i ended up putting my phone on the charger with messages open so it didn't get killed in the oh, background yeah. as quickly mm -hmm. but yeah this is one of those things we've talked about this every time we talk about iCloud it's sort of opaque to what yeah. is actually happening and sometimes just leaving them plugged in leaving them on will give it the best shot so i know yeah. that's frustrating there's not a magic bullet here i'm afraid it's yeah, that that's it. Ugh, it. You wish that there was just a place where you could go online and just say, uh, you just hit a button. It's like resync or something like that. And you can do it for each of the things that are apps in iCloud. That'd be really cool. Uh, Alrighty, let's go ahead and move on to the next question, which comes from Joey. Uh, Joey asks, I use the native iOS podcasts app. I'm trying to make a shortcut that just presses play in podcasts to continue whatever I was last listening to, but I can't seem to find a way to do that. Only option is to play one particular podcast. Help. Uh, unfortunately, the podcast app, the native podcast app, just doesn't have good shortcut support. So I actually took this question and talked to Rose from the Automators podcast. Is that nice. I, I sat down with my 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 iPad, played in shortcuts for like for a while, trying to get to work, talk to her, and it seems like this just isn't made possible 
at this point with podcasts, at least in any way that, that we could find. You do have some some options, though. You have the widget, uh, the, the podcast widget that you can just tap the artwork. Uh, so it's it's you know it shows the most recent I don't know how many is you know two or three uh, pieces of artwork for the podcast you have in your queue. You can tap on it and it will start playing immediately. So that that is an option. It's not in shortcuts, but it is again just sort of one screen over uh, with the widgets. Um, there are some podcast apps that do have better support. Uh, Overcast has pretty decent. Uh, Shortcut support, uh, including the Siri shortcuts, you can speak to it. Um, but podcast itself seems to be a little behind on this, and it's frustrating, right? Because it all comes from Apple, but this mm-hmm. is kind of how it is. Where sometimes third parties will, will beat Apple at their own game. But uh, this is one too that if if the listeners out there and they've worked out a way to do this, please share it. Rose and I couldn't come up with anything uh, that seemed like it was going to work consistently, which is a bummer because this would be great to have. But um, doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, hopefully they'll add it soon because uh, certainly the third. I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, a third party podcast app is typically made by a company that is just focusing on said third party podcast app, mm-hmm. whereas Apple has, uh, you know, internal teams specifically devoted to podcasts and things like that, but not quite the same. So it might take a little bit to roll out, and maybe uh, they aren't considering that as a feature now, and so making a little noise there would. Uh, spark somebody in the podcast app team to, you know, say, oh, yeah, that actually does make sense. We should add that. All right. To to round out today's episode, we have a question from Bastian who writes, "Uh, I just got my first iPhone uh, since before family sharing was introduced. I was wondering, is there a way to set up iCloud family sharing so everyone can pay for themselves as opposed to the, the head of the family paying for every piece of content yeah so iCloud family sharing kind of scares me um uh I, I think serenity caldwell notoriously has like a fake child that still exists she does yep. somewhere we, we talked about it on this very show a long time ago <laughs> uh i have enabled uh family sharing before i can't remember why i think i was just a glutton for punishment i don't know um but a lot of people i should say a lot of people do use it and it's yeah, just fine it. for them um so there's a thing called shared purchases and that is a, you know, specific feature within, um, within the family sharing option and shared purchases and payments are what allow the head of the family to make the, to, you know, to, to be in control of the purchases and also to sort of allow certain family members to make purchases, but also that everybody within the family can share all the content right. that's there. Um, the good thing is you can just turn off purchase sharing, uh, for folks if you don't want to pay for purchases of a, you know, like, uh, of, of specific people within it. Um, the best way it seems according to Apple support documents to go about it is by, <laughs> it says removing them from your family group. So essentially undoing family sharing. But, uh, Stephen, according to this, it's my understanding that if you turn off purchase sharing, then the purchase sharing and and payment system is not used within family sharing. Is this correct? Best I can tell, that's correct. I was unwilling to try this in my own family. <laughs> um, the way, but by default, though, anytime a family member makes a purchase, it's billed to the organizer's account. So if my wife makes a purchase or my kids makes a purchase, it goes on to my debit card. Um, I, like I said, I was hesitant to get into this too far, but it does seem like at least the default is to every everyone shares that same payment method. So what I would say is if it's really important to have separate payment methods, I would probably uh, avoid iCloud family sharing at this point unless there's a real reason, a real benefit to it. Like you just need to sit down and figure out what you want it to do for you and then go from there. So for us – what we really wanted was, uh, you know, our kids have iPads and they're a little older now. And so we give them a little more freedom, but we don't want them to be installing things at will. So we wanted the 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 feature where it asks a parent if they can download or install something. And so for us, that meant, okay, it's time to move from this like system we had of a shared Apple ID for purchases of separate iCloud accounts 
which was like kind of making this work, but sort of in a way that was a little shady mm-hmm. and then sort of graduating all the way to iCloud family sharing. So I would say if that's the most important thing to have separate payment uh, methods for each person, then it may not be worth the benefit uh, to, to go through all that. So, yeah, because I would say about this feature, you know, it's called family sharing and Apple genuinely is setting this up to work for like, this isn't one of those, you know, like Spotify, Netflix, and a few other subscription services will have what's called the family plan, but it's very easy to see how, you know, friends can pool together and use it. it it's meant to be that. This is not that same thing. This is genuinely set up as a way for families to, uh, all work within, you know, one, one area, uh, of, of, having, you know, the same, the same library. And so if what you're hoping is to be able to, uh, share apps and things like that with friends, but not have the same purchasing, then essentially like this, this feature was not made for that. It was, it was not made for a group of people who want to, you know, not each individually buy certain apps or, um, or, Apple books or iTunes content is genuinely made for families to be able to share those uh, individual bits of content and then also for adult family members to sort of control how purchasing and downloading goes. So it's not like a, a cheat code, I would say, to give you <laughs> access to everybody's content. Um, and in that sense, that's why it's set up this way to where you've got one uh, one family payment account paying for everybody. And I think that's why Apple adds, um, in here. If you don't want to pay for purchases of a specific adult family member, you can remove them from your family group. So the idea, or it says turn off purchase sharing for everyone. So it's like, if you want to purchase share, then you want, then you're going to have to have it come from one card. Uh, and in that sense, you're probably a family. But if you're looking for a way to just sort of spread the cost for different apps and services, then we don't offer that for you. <laughs> Bingo. All right. I think I think that does it for our, our episode this week. Uh, thanks for listening. You can find show notes to stuff we talked about at relay.fm slash query slash 45. If you want to submit questions for, for our next and final episode, you can tweet with the hashtag AskQuery. Uh, and I would say, uh, Michael, I would say we take we just sort of take the restrictions off this. So if you have any questions, yeah. not just tech, like life, anything, do like yeah. a little AMA next time. A little AMA for everybody. Yeah, you can ask either of us anything and we will, you know, choose pick and choose uh, the least answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So do that with the hashtag AskQuery on Twitter. You can find Micah there as uh, Micah Sargent. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next episode, Micah, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.